It was Morrissey's custom to sleep late. Often he'd proclaimed that no interesting criminal procedure happens after 3am or before noon, so I breakfasted alone in the Hitchings Hotel and even took in a round of golf before his lordship rose from his slumbers. Pluddles, I hope you haven't wasted the morning. No, Morrissey, I have not. If you must know, I have been scouting the area. You mean you have been golfing? You know what I think of the Scottish sport. Morrissey had written not one but three monographs on the dangers of golfing and how it had led to the ruin of empire. I decided that rather than listen to another lecture on how teeing off ruins the body's posture, I'd impress upon him my findings. Morrissey, in my travels I happened upon a most peculiar set of ruins. My dear Pluddles, we are here to solve a mystery, not to take in the local sites. But Morrissey, this particular site is germane to our investigation, for it is the ruins of the Pupili Ecclesia. Morrissey frowned. Latin was not a strong suit, given that he preferred the Conai Greek. Sometimes my lower-class schooling was an advantage. Pupili Ecclesia. Now, why does that ring a bell? The Church of Orphans, I believe? A ruined church? A forlorn church? A home of forlorn orphans? Pluddles? I may need to ask my publisher to pulp my fourth, forthcoming volume on the dangers of golf. Within minutes, Morrissey had finished his coffee and devoured, somehow gracefully, a full luncheon. Then, grabbing a cane at random from his room, he pushed us out the door into the sunlight afternoon of Alderthrop, towards the ruins of the Church of Orphans. Most curious, Pluddles. Most curious. Morrissey was staring at what appeared to be a grass verge to one side of the ruined church. I can tell by your look, Pluddles, that you cannot see what I see. But the thing is, my friend, it is what we both cannot see, which is the real mystery. Oh, I was not sure what else I could say. Pluddles, I realise that as a recently promoted Postmaster General, these things are not immediately obvious to the eye. But look at the general shape of this church. Surely you can tell what is missing. I scanned the area, taking in the ruins. The narthex was almost completely gone, exposing the nave and the aisles as they led to the altar. Only the apse and ambulatory stood, with elements of the stained glass still visible. I'm sorry, Morrissey, but all I see are ruins. Pluddles, my dear fellow, there is so much more to teach you. Did you not notice the crossing? Well, what there is of it, the north transept seems most indescript. And... And what? Dash it, Morrissey, stop teasing me and tell me what I'm obviously missing. The South Transit, Pluddles. What of the South Transit? There is none, Morrissey, obviously. Precisely. There is no evidence of one having ever existed. Yet you cannot tell me that the builder of this church never erected one. No, someone has gone to great lengths to erase all evidence of it, to the point they've even replanted the grass where it once lay. But why, Morrissey? Who would want to hide a transept? An excellent question, Puddles. I suspect the answer to that is at the very heart of this mystery. But first, my friend, we must meet ourselves for dinner. Ourselves? Yes, Puddles. We, the impostors Archibald and Merricat, are about to spy on our very real namesakes. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, sitting comfortably in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith, sitting, I assume, comfortably in Hamilton, somewhat, New Somewhat, after, after a bit of an adventure with security. Yes, there, there, there were swipe cards not working and so on, but, but we're all set up now. It's okay. You can relax. I can. And I'm going to relax mm. with a tasty, tasty beverage. Mm. Now, oh, oh, 
A can with a pull tab? How vulgar. Wow. Actually, so there's a reason why I'm drinking beer in this podcast, Joshua. Turns mm. out that I have looked at the exit surveys for patrons who have left the show. And it turns out that one of our patrons left the show because they showed disrespect to the listeners by podcasting whilst drunk. Mm. Which is curious because the drunk podcasting episodes tend to be the ones that we've had the most positive feedback on. So I think it just goes to show you there's no pleasing everyone. Precisely. So if you've been hurt or alarmed by the drinking or lack of drinking in this podcast, please do get in contact so that we can ameliorate your concerns by either increasing or decreasing the alcohol consumption before, during and after a podcasting session. Mm. Uh, now, on patron news, I understand we have a new one? We do. We do have a new patron, patron Steve, who was actually listening to this podcast if only a few seconds ago as we were live broadcasting, but unfortunately has either fallen off the Discord server or requires something and has gone off to do it. But we will be introducing Steve and our other new patron more properly in an introduction next week. Of course, last week's episode was a pre-record. This week's episode's introduction was the continuing adventures of Lord Morrissey, Morrissey and Pluddles, which means we haven't had a chance to do an introduction introducing patrons. So next week, there'll be a grand fandango of at least two people involved in a massive conspiracy that we have uncovered the truth of. Mm, two. That's more than one. That's twice as much as one. I don't that's, know if I can handle it. That's mm. num that's number wang. Mm. But uh moving on, um this week we have uh another instalment of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Uh the, the, the little short short and sweet one this week, I think it was, only about six pages long. And yet filled with tasty nuggets of philosophical wisdom. And it is, yes. We're about to begin talking about the article Nobody Expects the Spanish Inquisition, More Thoughts on Conspiracy Theory uh, by friend of the show, Brian L. Keeley. Um, so shall we, shall we do a bit of introduction now or shall we just play the sting and plough straight into it? I like say we play the sting sailor. and plough straight in. Nice. Right. Let's plough in then. So we've got a, 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 bit of, a bit a bit of the old philosophical back and forth now, now that we're a few um, a few instalments deep into Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. We had um, Brian L. Keeley's first paper on conspiracy, of Conspiracy Theories, rather, uh, was the second one we looked at, and then we had a bit of Lee Basham, who at, in, at some points uh, replied to Brian's first article. And so now we have an article from Brian replying to Lee's reply to him. I think I have that right. It is conspiracy inception. Mm. So I think the first thing we have to say about this is that if you were listening when we first talked about of conspiracy theories, uh, one of the, the, the more foundational papers on the theory of conspiracy I'm theory. sorry, you're not going to use the word seminal here, as we tend to always joke about? I, well, I, I actually like, like I would happily say the word seminal uh, and and giggle giddily uh, every time, but I was I was just going for a bit of variety, frankly, just try and try and you know broaden the vocabulary. But it, it is both foundational and seminal. Uh, our one major complaint with it was that compared to um, Charles Pigden's Popper Revisited, which we talked about before, which ended with a lovely reference to Robocop 2 right at the end, 
uh, Brian's paper had no pop culture references in it at all, and I think the force of our um, of, of our criticism was so strong it seems to have reverberated backwards through time somehow and caused him to put a pop culture reference in the actual title of his next paper. And, and and frankly, I I didn't I wasn't aware we had that much uh, power and influence in a philosophical or a or a cosmic sense. But there you go. See, I've I've always had confidence that our work would be recognised not just now but in the past as well. Hmm. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, so. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition subtitle. More thoughts on conspiracy theory. Uh, it's another one of those ones doesn't have a doesn't have a proper abstract as such, but it does have an opening paragraph that gives a good uh, good summation of things. Would you like to lead that off? Indeed. Although Lee Basham ends his article with the word "difficult theoretical work lies ahead," he has nonetheless advanced our understanding of the odd epistemic beast known as conspiracy theories. Basham's article is one of a number that have come to my attention since I first wrote about conspiracy theories in 1999. What these articles all have in common is a concern with what might be best termed practical epistemology, the application of the often esoteric concerns of academic epistemology to everyday questions of modern life. In the end, I'm not won over to Basham's way of seeing things, but his arguments have forced me to reconsider my views, hone my original ideas, and develop new responses. Mm. Now, it's one thing which I think is interesting here. So when, he, when Brian claims this is a number of articles has come to his attention since he first wrote about conspiracies in 1999, he references Clark and Basham, and actually an article by Jones I have not read, which I should actually rectify even though it's probably now well out of date. There is no reference to Charles Picton here. Mm. What has what what I suppose we we might see this eventually, but I mean Charles Pigton got the ball rolling, but uh, how how uh, prolific has he been since? How active? Well, that is a question for future episodes of Conspiracy Theory mm. Masterpiece Theatre, because Charles has written subsequently, but it does seem that really Bryant's work is where the main trunk of philosophical work based upon the essential questions Brian asked actually developed. And Charles has kind of been brought back into that discourse by later writers, notably people like myself and David Cody. Mm. So, like I say, it's a short article. It's six pages long, and about four of those pages are sort of summaries and updates of what's come before. Um, so it actually starts, now you'll recall... Um, Brian's paper used as its sort of central uh, case study, I guess, the conspiracy theories around the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, now, this paper is 2003, released in 2003, and as we've said, it's you know we, we, we are post 9-11, but we're not yet at the point in, in history when 9-11 conspiracy theories become the biggest game in town, so Oklahoma City is still kind of the, 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 the go-to example. Um, and he starts with a bit of an update. So in 2003, when this article was written, um, Timothy McVeigh had been executed by this time, um, and it was still Terry Nichols. They were still um, there were still appeals and so on uh, as to whether or not he would be uh, would get the death penalty. You know, we know he didn't in the end, but um, that was still up in the air. Um, but there is he, he sort of gives an update on the state of the conspiracy theories, I guess, um, which is that McVeigh 
um, claimed before his execution that there was nobody else involved, that it was all him, which um, some people would think, well, that, that, that maybe puts a puts a nail in the coffin of the conspiracy theories there. But on the other hand, a, a good conspiracy theorist would say, well, actually, maybe he was just, um, you know, he, he knew he had been sentenced to death. There was no way out. He was going to die for sure. So he thought maybe he'd go out a martyr and um, insist that, that, that there was no one else to protect his co-conspirators. So sort of the conspiracy theory uh, still still continues apace. But um that's kind of immaterial, I guess, to everything that comes next. It's just sort of an interesting update because um, from then on, he goes into uh, in, into a bunch of summary of the arguments around. He summarizes his arguments. He summarizes Lee's arguments. He, he summarizes Lee's arguments against his arguments. So um, I guess we should get summarizing. We should. So basically, Brian restates the premise of his original paper, which is he's interested in looking at a particular class of unwarranted conspiracy theory, the mature conspiracy theory, to see if there is any kind of mark of the incredible that we can apply to particular conspiracy theories and go, actually, these are ones that we have grounds to be sceptical about prima facie. And his argument is there is no inherent mark of the incredible. Simply, there are wacky conspiracy theories which are the kind of things which are so necessarily vague that no evidence has ever been amounted towards them with time, and thus they kind of mature in that kind of stinky cheese way I've talked about maturity in previous episodes, because no adequate evidence has amounted over that time. That is a good reason to go, well, look, you've had a lot of chances here to amount evidence to show a conspiracy actually occurred. No evidence is forthcoming. So on those grounds and those grounds alone, we are allowed to look askance at this particular conspiracy theory. Yes, now he does <clears throat> He does conclude this bit by saying, eventually, at some necessarily vague point, the degree of global scepticism required to hold the theory becomes genuinely nihilistic. It can be rejected on the same grounds on which we reject globally sceptical worries as that the world came into existence only five minutes ago. And that, um, as I recall from when we've talked in the past, this, this necessary vagueness that he mentions was kind of one of the things that I thought was held against him a little bit, and that it was he he's talking about these mature conspiracy theories without giving a good conception of when a, a conspiracy theory has become mature. Um, he says it's it's necessarily vague when that might happen, but I don't that seems to be dodging the problem rather than than solving it. Now I've had thoughts about this subsequently for the sheer fact that I do think there are points for and against the vagueness in this kind of criterion. So it's true that we kind of pinged Brian in our previous discussion for jumping on the Oklahoma City bombing example as being an unwarranted conspiracy theory, given how little time had occurred between the writing of the paper and the event being described in that paper. It doesn't seem that it was a particularly long time, and you can imagine in a situation where you have a federal investigation, six or seven years later, a new lead is discovered, and actually it turned out that there was something more to the story after all. Conversely, I've been thinking about COVID-19 conspiracy theories, and I think it's fair to say that on this podcast, 
We have characterized a lot of COVID-19 conspiracy theories as being examples of unwarranted conspiracy theories, given little time in their development notwithstanding. Mm. So I think it's right that actually this time period is necessarily vague. You can't simply put a timestamp on it and say three weeks, three months, three years, three decades, because we're actually looking at the contents of particular theories and asking, look, given the amount of investigation that's going into these claims, claims which are being investigated furiously, we might think of as maturing in that bad sense quite quickly, because a lot of work has been done and still there's no evidence of a conspiracy, Whilst other claims which rumble along in a really, really slow way, we might think of as taking a lot longer to mature because there isn't as much investigative activity going on there. And maybe that's a good point to bring in his analogy with archaeology. Mm. Yes, he makes an interesting point. Uh, he, he draws the uh, analogy with um, the case of uh, human occupation of the the American continent. Now, most archaeological evidence says that humans uh, first occupied the Americas around 11,000 BC, Um, but there is occasionally some evidence pops up that humans had been there a lot earlier than that. Now, this, um, the, the problem with these theory, you know, some people say, well, hang on, so if you have evidence that comes earlier, then surely that proves that they had to have been there earlier. But the argument is it's quite like there's a lot of evidence that says humans colonized the Americas around 11,000 BC. Very little evidence has ever been found saying it's earlier. And that in places where we know um, humans were around a lot earlier, it's quite easy to find evidence of that. So this one little piece of evidence um, in the same way that you can have these little bits of evidence that uh, conspiracy theories find themselves grounded on, he will say, well, actually, you, you can disregard that simply by the fact that there's lots more evidence contrary to it in the particular area, and in areas where we know that sort of evidence can be found, it's quite easy. Um, so he will say, uh, he, he, he applies this to um, conspiracy theories by saying... <clears throat> It is generally true that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but this maxim is misapplied in cases in which evidence is actively sought and is not discovered in spite of its discovery in other parallel situations. As time passes and evidence in favour of a particular conspiracy theory fails to manifest, in spite of the diligent efforts of many and in spite of the discovery of such evidence in other prima facie similar cases, a downward adjustment of that theory's credibility ought to result. Wise words. Mm. And nicely put, but um, so that I mean, again, we're we're still basically summarising the view that he's already put forward. Uh, so then he moves on to looking at malevolent global conspiracy by Lee Basham, the last paper that we looked at in this series. And um, I think at the time we said that it seemed to be a little bit of a doubling down by Lee of 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 taking the um, view he'd he'd put forth in his earlier paper and really sort of taking it to the extreme. And this seems to be what. Um, how Brian sees it, at least. Give us, give us the quote. 
Basham has taken the bull by the horns. He's taken on the most extreme version of the conspiracy theory, the one that might seem prima facie to be the least plausible, and instead argues that it has, in fact, a far stronger epistemic standing than one might imagine. Mm. So um, he goes on to to summarise what Basham said and then his reactions to it, although before he does that, he brings up um, an important point, which is one that comes through the rest of it, I think, which is that he's he's interested in whether or not conspiracy theories are warranted, not simply are these conspiracy theories possible? Is it, is it possible that con this conspiracy theory is true? He's interested in are we warranted in believing that the conspiracy theory is true? And those aren't really the same things, are they? No. In fact, actually, this was a discussion I had with Brian earlier today. So Brian... Martin or Jin Husting and sometimes Lee Basham when he's able to get to the computer. We have a kind of fortnightly to tri-weekly conspiracy theory reading group where we're reading recent papers in the literature and passing comment upon them. And in a paper we had read just last week, there was a discussion about Brian's work in that particular paper, and that led on to a discussion of the fact that Brian likes to use practical examples in his talk about conspiracy theory, in part because he does a, a, lot of, a, a lot of work elsewhere in the philosophy of the sciences, where it's actually quite important to talk about what scientists actually be believe. And so Brian is actually very interested in actual conspiracies and the way that evidence amounts towards or against them, as opposed to the logical possibility that there are conspiracies abounding in the background. So when Brian's talking about warrant, he's talking here about a, a notion of justification in the epistemic literature which is saying, look, we're looking at the possibility a conspiracy has occurred with respect to the evidence there actually is a conspiracy. So he kind of, he, I mean, he kind of states this in a quote from page 107. Mm. I still feel it is important to keep the metaphysical and epistemic issues separate. The metaphysical issue is a question of truth. Is it possible that a given conspiracy theory is true? The very fact that we give conspiracy theories any credence at all reflects our belief in their logical possibility. Even the most extreme malevolent global conspiracies, i.e. that our sensory experience is being manipulated by Descartes' evil demon, are logical possibilities. However, this issue is separate from that of the warranted believability of such claims. There is much in the world that is possible that is nonetheless literally incredible. What makes the issue of conspiracy theories one for practical epistemology is this latter epistemic issue. Should we accede to the kind of conspiratorial thinking Basham describes? So basically, Brian here is concerned with the idea that, yes, we can say it is logically possible that there are massive conspiracies going on in the background, but we need to say slightly more than that if we're actually going to admit to the existence of a malevolent global conspiracy, we need something in the way of evidence to go, look, people don't just conspire, people have or are conspiring in a very particular way. Hmm. And he's, 
this, I think this is the second time after the, the introduction where he brings up this idea of practical epistemology, which he mentions as being similar to uh, practical ethics. We can, you can debate ethical theory um, at length, and people do in philosophy, but then there's another branch that's, okay, how do we actually apply that um, to the situations we find ourselves in in real life? And so this is the similar sort of thing for epistemology. Now, um Having made that little little disclaimer there, um, he then goes to look at um, Basham's arguments and, and then responds to them. So um, as he summarizes, and as you'll remember from when we talked about this two weeks ago, um, Basham considers and rejects four different alleged grounds for undermining the epistemic warrant of conspiracy theories. They are A, unfalsifiability. B, uncontrollability, C, appeal to the trustworthiness of public institutions of information, and D, paranoia. So in other words, some people will say conspiracy theories are unwarranted because they're unfalsifiable. Some will say they're unwarranted because that at that level of conspiracy theory, it's uncontrollable. You can't, you, you, it's not possible to manage that number of people or keep a lid on things. People will say, um, you, you shouldn't believe these conspiracy theories uh, because of what we believe about the trustworthiness of society. Um, that wouldn't allow these things to happen. And some people will say you shouldn't believe these things because people who say them are paranoid. And Lee says, actually, I don't buy any of that. Now, Brian says, as far as unfalsifiability goes, he's completely on board with Lee. Uh, he also thinks it's not a problem that conspiracy theories can be unfalsifiable. Um, he also agrees that um, the paranoia uh, grounds uh, is, is not grounds for undermining um, the warrant of conspiracy theories, although he says <clears throat> he makes a point of saying it's not sort of an ad hominem. He, he's not saying it's bad because that would be an ad hominem attack to say, "Oh, you're just paranoid. That's why we shouldn't believe your conspiracy theory." He says it's 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 basically question begging. Um, the point of paranoia is that it's an unreasonable belief in some sort of persecution, but what we want to establish is whether or not it's unreasonable in the first place. So if you're saying conspiracies are bad because they're paranoid, you're essentially saying conspiracies are unreasonable because they're unreasonable, and you're not actually adding anything to it. Um, he sort of ends up saying, to, to label a conspiracy theory paranoid is merely to restate the claim that it is unwarranted. It is not evidence for rejecting it. So okay, fair enough. So 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 Brian and Lee are two peas in a pod when it comes to falsifiability and paranoia, but the other two, uh, uncontrollability and appeal to public institutions' trustworthiness, uh, that's where he disagrees, does he not? Yes. So and this is this is kind of the ground of contention between Brian and Lee. So Brian's much more of the opinion that yes, we can show qua Lee that there is an awful lot of conspiratorial activity going on in the background. And no one denies that conspiracies occur, and no one denies that quite sophisticated conspiracies occur all the time. But as he states, the controllability and trustworthiness of human institutions is exactly what is at question here. So it's one thing to say there are lots of conspiracies, it's another thing to say that there are conspirators out there who have a kind of perfect control over things such that they are able to hide their conspiratorial machinations in a way that cannot be detected. 
So you might think that this is an unfair characterization of what Lee is trying to get across, because Brian's construal of what Lee is cla claiming is that these malevolent global conspiracies are such that they should be constructed in a way that no one is able to ever detect them. At which point Brian says, well, this actually, this allows us to apply Hume's analysis of miracles to these conspiracy theories after all. So thank you, Lee, for actually showing there is a principled demarcation that we can use Hume for. Arguably, you could say that actually that's not what Lee is saying at all. Lee is not saying that these large-scale malevolent conspiracy theories are things which are completely invisible, and thus there's no rational way to ever develop belief upon them. There is going to be some evidence there with what Lee calls the tri triangle of crime, motive, opportunity, and... And I've now Opportu forgot. No, hang on, you just said opportunity. Yeah. Means. Means, Motive means yeah. opportunity. Yeah. That's, thank you kindly. This is why you're such a good co-host, co Josh. You remember things that I don't. And so Lee's argument is actually even these malevolent global conspiracies are going to be detectable in some way, shape, or form due to elements of the triangle of crime and persevering investigators doing these particular things. But of course, Brian's response to that is going to be, well, that's precisely the question we're looking at when we're trying to an analyze the warrant of these particular claims. I'm saying that actually it's not possible to control these things in a particular way, and you're saying actually it's much easier for people to control these things in a particular way. It's not really a difference of opinion per se, it's a difference of degree. Lee thinks it's a lot easier to control conspirators and keep control of information. Brian thinks it's a lot more difficult. And that then steeps, steeps, steps into the worry about the trustworthiness of public institutions of information. Because Lee is of the opinion that actually these systems of control means that you can't really give a prima facie reason for trusting public institutions. And Brian is going, well, actually, we have to have some level of trust to be able to operate as social animals in epistemic communities. So once again, it's not a difference of opinion. It's another difference of degree. Hmm. And um, as you said before, um, Brian's interested in the in the actual, the concrete, real cases that people bring up. Um, so... One of the examples that they both talked about was the um, conspiracy to hide the details of the D-Day landings in World War Two. Um, they'd say, you know, looked at it, that worked, right? They, you know, they they were able to keep the exact location and timing of the landing secret, um, and that was a massive undertaking. How many, how many hundreds of thousands of people were involved? Um, but. Brian replies, well, okay, yes, the exact details might have been kept secret, but it was no secret at all that there was going to be a big push and it was going to be coming from the British Isles. I mean, you can't hide the fact that that, that, that number of troops were massing there. Um, and even, even then, it, it sort of becomes easier because this was in wartime when there's a lot more, there was a lot more control. There's a wartime and in the 1940s when there was a lot more control over... Um, 
media and the spread of information. Um, and then he also talks about, you know, and then also there are these government um, agencies that uh, are very secretive and, and you know, do a very good job of hiding what they're up to. But we still know they exist. We, we still know the NSA exists. We still know Area 51 exists. You know, it's, they're, they're actual things. So um, the idea that these cases illustrate that you can keep tight control on things, um, he doesn't actually find that convincing. Now, once again, this is probably a matter of degree and also a matter of description. So one debate that those of us in the conspiracy theory theory community engage in all the time is challenging the way that we describe particular conspiracy theories. So it's a fairly standard adage in the literature that people will say, oh, no, no, but that's not a conspiracy theory. That's an official story. So you basically take something which would be a conspiracy theory by any other name and go, oh, it doesn't quite fit. And the other version of this is describing particular stories to make them more or less conspiratorial. And I think the D-Day landings is a kind of interesting example here, because depending on how you tell the story from the perspective of the Allied powers or the Axis powers, it becomes more or less a cover-up. So the Axis were aware that the Allies were amassing tropes. But the Allies were also aware that the Axis were looking at what they were doing. So the secrecy that the Allies engaged in was confusing the Axis as to which day the invasion would be and the location of that invasion. And that required a massive amount of work and a disinformation campaign to make sure that the Axis, even if they got the vaguest hint, it was going to be D-Day, not A-Day, B-Day, or C-Day, and the Normandy location. They would still be distracted by other information that would make them go off in a completely different direction. So depending on how you describe the story, you can go, well, actually wasn't that secret, or, or well, yeah, they gave the appearance of it not being that secret, but actually that was part of the cover-up itself, to actually hide the extent of the secrecy that was going back months, if not years, of preparation. Hmm. Um, and furthermore, I mean, Lee's, though, the, the malevolent global conspiracy uh, theories that Lee is talking about are are sort of another level on top of that anyway. Um, as as uh, Brian characterises them, uh, they seem more akin to keeping secret a D-Day invasion in which not only is the invasion itself a secret, but even the existence of the would-be invader is unknown to the victims. It's, again, it's sort of a, the, the perfect crime thing, the perfect malevolent global conspiracy theory would um, be perfect or, or near perfect in covering up its existence. Um, Which, as I said, may not be a fair characterization mm, of what mm. Lee's actually meaning. Um, and so he, he sort of, he, he, he Brian characterizes Lee as appealing to a sort of a, a the lottery paradox, which I assume is just the fact that it's incredibly rare to win the lottery and yet people do win the lottery all the time. Um, so that while no individual global conspiracy theory is warranted, we nonetheless have evidence that it's very likely or even certain that at least one global conspiracy is in operation. And this, I guess, comes back to Lee's talk in, in his papers about what, what, what would a world in which we know there are 
no global malevolent conspiracy theories present look like, certainly not the world we live in. Um, but Brian, uh, and, and now we're basically down to the last, the final two paragraphs of this paper in which Brian actually gives his um, responses to, to Lee's views, um, and he has two of them. Do you want to take the first one? First, it is a long way from adultery and insider trading to the kind of all-encompassing, world-controlling global conspiracies that are the focus of his argument. What Basham's historical record proves is that there are certainly groups of individuals who are nefarious enough that they would love to pull off a malevolent global conspiracy if such a thing were possible. What marital infidelity and business skullduggery does not show, I believe, is that such a feat could be pulled off or that we have a warranted grounds for fearing that such a conspiracy is currently in operation. So this is once again the warrant versus possibility distinction. Mm. Now what do you, like, like I, I was a little bit, I, I wasn't quite sure reading this whether it's a, a mischaracterization or not. He sort of seems to be saying, oh, Lee's arguing for the possibility of these conspiracies and I'm more interested in their warrant, but it seems like I, I kind of feel like Lee might want to say, no, actually, I'm saying they're warranted, not just possible, but warranted. Um, what, what, like, do you think it's a mischaracterization or, or a fair, fair thing here? Well, the thing is, I mean, I've played around with versions of this argument in my own work. Because, I mean, it does seem obvious that prior incidents of past conspiracies tells us something about the commonplaceness of conspiracy generally in our society. And so I think that allows us to at least entertain their existence now. So that is kind of a possibility claim. Given that we know conspiracies have occurred, it is not just logically possible that conspiracies are occurring now, but we've got some evidence to think that actually they probably are occurring now at the same time. So I do agree with Lee that we can move from the logical possibility move to the warrant move here, just for the sheer fact we are also adding evidence to that mix. We're not just saying it's logically possible. We're saying, look, we've got history on our side as well. But I do think Brian's also right that we can't just move from the fact that people conspire to the notion that there is at least one large-scale conspiracy going on in our civilizational complex. And that's in part because, as Brian points out, the kind of global malevolent conspiracy that Lee wants to talk about probably doesn't resemble things like the D-Day landings and the like. It's something bigger and grander than that claim, at least the way that Lee describes it in Malevolent Global Conspiracy. So if we're then going to infer that such a thing exists, we don't just need the conspiracies occur clause, we also then need to bring in, and here's some evidence to show the conspiracy is bigger than you think, which is basically posterior probability of bringing in evidence about this particular claim. And then we have to assess the relative probability of this claim being true over some other claim 
also explaining the same phenomenon. And so in that particular respect, I kind of agree with both of them, but that's also kind of the point of my article when inferring to a conspiracy might be the best explanation. And we'll be getting to that paper eventually, or at least you will be. Mm. I have a plan as to who is going to be replacing me in that episode. Mm. So that's that, that's Katie's, um, well, Brian's first response to Lee. Um, his second response is, as he puts it, the historical record cuts both ways. It can be read, as Basham does, as an endorsement of the hypothesis that small groups of individuals secretly control large segments of what we take to be the free world. However, it should also be noted that when it comes to committing large-scale evil, secrecy is often largely unnecessary. There have been horrible, horrible things that have happened... Um, in, in the history of the world that people have been able to perpetrate and they haven't actually needed to, to invoke a giant global conspiracy to do it. Um, as he says, uh, six million European Jews, gypsies and homosexuals can be rounded up and systematically murdered without a global conspiracy. The witches of Salem can be tried and burned to death without a global conspiracy. And as the Monty Python comedy team quoted in my title correctly points out, events such as the Spanish Inquisition are entirely unexpected. Um, and he, um, he, he concludes, if one wishes to be malevolent on a global scale, why waste time and energy maintaining a conspiracy when history shows one can get away with it in the open? Now, I don't know, I don't quite know enough about the examples he puts forward to see how good they are. I mean, how, how secret was the Holocaust? Because you hear stories of people saying, you know, they didn't, they are being shocked and horrified when they found out about the concentration camps and so on and never realised this is how far it went. I don't know how much of that is sort of self-serving, how much of it is willful, willful ignorance. What was that sort of stuff? You know, what, what, how much conspiracy was involved in things like that? So well, see, the Holocaust does seem to be an example of it was... Secret to a certain extent, but willful ignorance also played an awful role in maintaining that secrecy. So in the kind of society in which National Socialism was rampant, people weren't liable to ask questions about exactly what was going on behind the scenes, and thus were willing to at least on the face of it accept the official pronouncement that people were simply being relocated to camps outside of the German border to happily live out their lives. But at the same time, there were also cattle trucks of people going off to camps in locations that weren't as far away from cities as you might actually expect. So, yes, there was some cover-up there, but not as much cover-up as maybe we would like to think the hol Holocaust would have required. Mm. And I believe as a pedantic point, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition was the, the joke from the Monty Python sketch because it was based on the common expression when you're being questioned saying, geez, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. I, I, I'm, I, I've been told that in actuality people received notice when they were going to be brought in by the Spanish Inquisition. So, in fact, everyone expected the Spanish Inquisition. But um, but no, I mean, this, this is an interesting point. Um, it, it actually reminded me of more recent claims, that, that the sort of weird transphobic claims people make saying that... that trans women are actually just men who want who, who are dressing up as women so they can sneak into safe places like women's bathrooms and assault women or something and people have replied 
why would in, in the world in which we live in which it is vanish the, the chances of say a rape case being successfully brought in the first place and then a guilty uh, conviction being acquired we, we we know how low that is when we know how often men get away with assaulting women all the goddamn time why would a man go to the lengths of insisting that he's actually a woman and and to to, to sneak in this nefarious plan it it, uh, it just seems completely unnecessary so i mean there's certainly it's not a um it's not a it's it's not a hard logical argument but it is it is an interesting argument that if you want to say that if if you are as lee is appealing to sort of the state of the world in which we live um, then probably you can say, yeah, maybe if we actually look at the world, we can see that it shows you don't need a global malevolent, a malevolent global conspiracy theory after all. It's it, it's an interesting point. Um, well, it's kind of a counterpoint a to the warrant point. So if we're simply talking about logical possibility, then yes, large-scale malevolent conspiracies are possible. If we're considering the point from warrant, so to be to use a kind of broad generalization, whether we think these things are practicable, then you end up going, well, if you've got two rival hypotheses here, either you have people conspiring in the background to get what they want, or you've got people operating in the open to get what they want. And actually, it turns out people operate in the open all the time to achieve these terrible means that we sometimes think are actually the domain of conspiratorial activity. So why think that the global malevolent conspiracy is the issue? Why not simply go, actually, we live in a terrible world where people do these things openly and don't have to keep things secret? Hmm. So there you go. I mean, at the end of the day, this was a very... A very uh, brief little piece, um, but we've managed to talk about it for the same amount of time we usually do any of the others. So I think there was some. Uh, it was it was nicely distilled, I guess. The points there were were, were nicely substantive. Um, I mean, it is a great example of a very succinct philosophical paper that still contains within it an awful lot of very interesting information. Hmm. So there you go. That's another. Another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre out of the way, and we still haven't left uh, 2003, have we? No, we have so not. There's, there's plenty more to come, but um, that'll do for now. Now, our um, our, our patrons, um, including those who may still be listening in on Discord or not, uh, good, good, good for you if you still are. Um, our patrons will, of course, get a bonus episode this week because they're lovely people and they deserve it. Uh, so this week's episode, we've got, um, I mean, a bit, a bit of the usual QAnon-y stuff, the, the, the various people who are supposedly trafficking and stolen children and all of that business. Um, we've got, um, I, I think possibly the most significant uh, thing that I've seen happen in the last week is that I heard a person pronounced Ghislaine Maxwell's name out loud. I'd assumed Ghislaine, but um, no, everybody says Ghislaine, so let's um, let's go with Ghislaine. So we're talking about her, obviously. And a uh, bit, bit of the Trumpy stuff, bit of the political stuff, bit of the bit of the conspiracy business as usual, I suppose. Yes, there's an awful there's an awful lot of news because we basically missed a week mm. and our patrons are going to hear about all sorts of wackiness, including some local news, which isn't so much conspiratorial, except maybe 
It is. Hmm. So, um, strap in, patrons. You've got that to look forward to. But for the rest of you, um, thank you for listening anyway, because you're our audience, and without you, we don't actually uh, have any good reason to exist. And remember, if you are concerned about the drinking or lack, lack of drinking in this podcast, please do get in contact. Mm. We need your feedback. We do, yes. The, the alcohol content of this show should be carefully calibrated. I mean, if it we... turns out that more drunken podcasts means more patrons, then more drunken podcasts. Yeah, that's. I, I think that seems to be the only logical inference. Well, so at the same time, if less drunken podcasts means more patrons, then there'll be less drinking, which is probably mm. good for me long term. Well, yes, yes, overall. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll let you decide. Um, so until next week or until patrons you put on the bonus episode, uh, we will say to you goodbye. And I'll say toodly pip. And why not? been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mrx dented which is written researched, recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts mikey fluids and conspiracism December was a night.